This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me on mic today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kasten-Smith. And uh, I am going to confess to the fact that this is the second time we started recording uh, this episode of the Out of Water Podcast, but your esteemed producer here didn't click the record button. <laughs> you guys missed it it was so brilliant it, it was brilliant uh, it's not going to be anywhere near as good I, I don't know what to tell you oh my goodness so uh <laughs> welcome <laughs> to our we're continuing our series of desiring the kingdom uh this is uh, we're coming to first kings chapter 21 and the story of a man named naboth and uh, when I was kind of looking over this chapter as I was studying it, getting ready to do our personal worship study notes on this passage, um, what it felt like to me was that this, this chapter was bookended by two things I thought were really unfair. And then the sandwich in the middle of this unfair cookie were three things I really don't like. Uh, there's entitlement, ruthlessness, and cowardice on display in here. And those are three things that I just have no tolerance for at all. I can't stand mm-hmm. people that are entitled. I hate people that are ruthless and people that are cowardly. I'm like, ah. Oh. So it starts off with the story of this guy, Naboth. And, and what happens to him, quite frankly, isn't fair. You'll hear that mm-hmm. as the story plays out. And then when it ends, God is being merciful to someone. And I'm like, no, <laughs> this person deserves to get their, you know, their just punishment, Lord. Don't be fair. Don't be merciful. That's not fair. So I, this was a chapter that for me at least was, was kind of, you know, I had to, I had to look at it for a while and sit with it for a while and recognize that, you know, part of the message for me in this chapter was that God isn't, God does not play the same kind of fair, unfair games that we do as human beings. Mm-hmm. His sense of justice is different than ours. And we're going to see that his his sense of justice, quite frankly, is is perfect, which just tells me that our sense of justice comes from a position of a lot of pettiness and 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 what's in it for us, that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. um why don't you kind of set the the stage for us, Sam, as what's going on here with Naboth, because the the reason that Naboth winds up here is that he had the the misfortune to own a piece of property that was next to Ahab's palace. So what's going on here? Yeah, so so we're in the second of three chapters that are devoted to showing us how wicked Ahab is. Yeah. And in the last chapter, you saw Ahab, who you know, the king Ben-Hadad of Syria comes to him and says, I'm going to take your silver and your gold and your wives and your kids. And you get a picture of Ahab where he goes, okay, here, <laughs> what else can I get you? You know, he's just a, a weasel, just a total coward. And the elders actually come to him and they're like, no, we, you know, don't do that. You're going to be giving away our stuff. And so Ahab eventually goes against him, and the Lord and his mercy is on Ahab's side, defends Israel even despite its wickedness. And Ahab, after defeating them, doesn't do what the Lord requires of him in this war. 
and actually tries to buddy up against with Ben Haddad, right? And at this right. last chapter, mm-hmm. goes up to him and is like, "Oh, brother, you know." Right. And one of the things that you'll find in Ahab, which is which is interesting, is he shows more of a desire to be friends with those who are opposed to him, these foreigners and their gods. He's he's chasing after them. But in this chapter, you see that even as he's trying to buddy up with and negotiate for the friendship of these foreigners and their pagan gods, he, in this chapter, will look at his own very faithful, good, righteous people and their god, and he shows total contempt for his own people. He uses his authority to abuse them. And so he's like the worst of all sorts of character issues. He's cowardly. He's chasing after, you know, all the pagan influence, and he's showing contempt toward God's righteous ones in the land who are under his authority. Now, um, Jezreel's not the capital of Israel, right? But he had a palace there. What what was the deal with that? Correct. So, so Ahab, we know this from archaeological digs where they found his residence both in Jezreel and in the city of Samaria. Jezreel is is further to the south. It opens up to a a valley, you have a lot of agriculture there. And so they've actually dug and found an administrative complex that would have belonged to Ahab in this place that we're talking about, Jezreel. And right next to that administrative palace, they uncovered a vineyard. And they know that it's a vineyard because they find, you can Google this, limestone basins where they had the places where you would trot over the grapes to create wine. I mean, it's still there. The wine press and everything else is still there in the stone. And so this probably Naboth's vineyard. And so archaeology has confirmed that all of the ingredients are at this place for this story. And because this vineyard was so close to Ahab's palace, Ahab is like, hmm, I would like that territory. (laughs) So is this like the winter White House? Is that the deal? (laughs) Kind of, yeah. That's the same idea? It's Uh, like an auxiliary palace or something where they Mm -hmm. would go and when the weather weather was right, they would go to the south or something like that? Mm -hmm. All right, so let's pick up the story here. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria, And after this, the events that Sam was talking about, the battle with Ben-Hadad and the war with Syria, uh, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. (laughs) Because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. And I just want to pause for a second and say that on the surface of it, that sounds like Ahab was being reasonable. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, it just seems. I mean, it's a, it just seems like a fair offer that Ahab was making to Naboth. Look, I'm, I'll give you a better vineyard or money. You know, yeah. I mean, it it's, sounds more than fair. Sounds I'm going to give you fair. something better. Yeah. But Naboth said to Ahab, verse three: The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father, fathers. What's going on with that answer? That's an unusual answer. Yeah, and it's it's hard for people with American ears to kind of enter into the story because we do real estate transactions, and there's no big deal. If I wanted to sell my house or a plot of land to you, and we were both consenting, it would be no big deal. Yeah. But in Israel, before they even – in the back in the days of Moses, when Moses is writing the first five books of the law, before they've even come into the promised land to take possession of the land – Moses gave these instructions from God, which is in each and every one of these tracts of land, I'm going to set aside a specific plot of land 
for each family. Okay. And that family would have to keep that plot of land inside the family for generations. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the law was set up to where even if you did sell the land or let's say you ran up debts and you had to sell your land or someone took possession of your land because you owed them or whatever – there was a, something called the the year of Jubilee, and in the law of Jubilee, at the end – at a 50-year mark, you were required – all land would go back to their families. And the idea behind that was written into the law is that God was preventing generational poverty so that the sins – you know, if I became an addict and I, you know, made a mess of my life and I sold all my property, you know, two generations later – when the impacts of my decisions are now impacting two generations later, they're not forever kind of cursed into this cycle of poverty, and the land would actually go back. And so Naboth is looking at this inheritance, and he knows that it's not supposed to go outside of his family, and so he refuses to sell it. He's honoring the Lord and saying, absolutely not. Like, this is the inheritance given to my fathers going back all the way to the days of Joshua. When they came into the land, I'm not going to forsake it. So literally the promised land. It's like this right. God promised this land yeah. to me and my – to my family rather. Mm-hmm. I can't give it away. And one of the things that makes this interesting, and it, it's you, – you kind of read behind the story a little bit here. Uh, but the, the name Naboth literally means something along the lines of fruit um, or a sprout – and so in, in Hebrew, like the fact that his father names him after what this vineyard produces shows that this was very precious in that family. Um, and then there's a lot more going on here. The, the name Jezreel, which is the, the name of this place where they're at, literally means God sows. And so there's a little bit of a story that's going on here that I think we're supposed to pick up on. Which is, you know, here God has sown the land. He is the one who has planted this vineyard. And here's Naboth, whose name literally means fruit. And so you begin to think, hmm, God plants this vineyard or garden, and here's Naboth, the fruit. And now the story is going to unfold, and you're going to see this is somewhat of a retelling of the Garden of Eden. So I think the the verse from Leviticus, uh, I think, is interesting about this the redemption of property. It says, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 says, The land shall not be sold permanently, which is the point you were making. Mm-hmm. For the land is mine. <laughs> for you are strangers and sojourners with me. It's like God is saying to them, I'm giving you this land, but it's still my land. And so you're not allowed to transfer title of it personally. And then in Numbers 36, 7, it says, So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So Naboth was being a good Jew here. He was following the, the, the Mosaic law, saying, I can't do this for you. Um, and Ahab, of course, Ahab being the wise and kind leader that he is, he took this well and said, you're right, Naboth. You know, you're, no, <clears throat> no, he didn't. Verse four, and Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. Because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Now, I'm a parent, two children. <laughs> Sam, you're a parent, four children. What age would you say Ahab is from this description? 
uh, he's, I don't know, seven. Uh, I was going to say five. like maybe even five, three or four, five. <laughs> that is a childish reaction. If I mean, He literally went to his room and threw himself on his bed and pouted and wouldn't come down for dinner. I'm not going to eat. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you can almost picture it. It's like you wonder like – What's up with this guy? Like, yeah. it feels like there has to be more to this story. He is just so unbelievably entitled to steal your word. He is just spoiled rotten. It's, it's, it really is. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. It's, I'm at a loss for words, folks. <laughs> so verse five, Jezebel comes into the room, but Jezebel, his wife came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Now, I want to call your attention to something here, because I pointed this out in the uh, the aftermath of the Mount Carmel thing, where uh, Elijah faced the prophets of Baal, and, and after proving that Baal was not there, and that the Lord was the true God, they had the prophets of Baal killed. And they went back to Jezreel, and the report that was given to Jezebel, presumably by Ahab, was that Elijah killed the prophets of Baal, not the prophets of Baal weren't able to get their God to show up, not the Lord came down and proved himself. It wasn't a very careful accounting. It was spun in a way that (laughs) Ahab wanted it for his own benefit. And again, we're seeing here, because that was not Naboth's answer. Naboth's answer was, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. He says, I will not give you my my vineyard. I mean, that's to me, right there, that's the entitlement angle that gets to me most, because Mm -hmm. Ahab is so entitled, believes that he... Does, that everything should just come to him, no matter who owns it or whatever. Forget God. Forget what God said. This is all about, I'm not getting what I want. And I'm trying to do my little five-year-old pout here. He gives a selective answer. That's an Ahab trait. It's, you know, he didn't <laughs> lie. But he also withheld information that he knew was going to change the tone of the answer. And that is... You know, that's the thing that gets kind of debated from time to time in terms of questions about honesty, you know, and I people say to me, look, sometimes I hold things back because I don't want to upset the other person. And I'm like, OK, I understand that you you might choose not to disclose something to to protect somebody else's feelings or whatever. But you what you have to check yourself on is to make sure that you're not doing it to pres- to protect yourself, to preserve yourself. If the reason that you're answering questions selectively is to benefit yourself, like Ahab, then like Ahab, what you're demonstrating is entitlement. Mm-hmm. I am entitled to not get myself in trouble. I yeah. am entitled to give you a half-true answer or an incomplete answer in order to come out of this looking better. I'm entitled to that. Yeah, and there's there's actually a little bit of a of a play going on here that has to do with authority because Naboth's answer to Ahab was, you know, I know that you, the king, want my property, but there's an authority higher than you that I'm submitting to. Right. And so 
I answer to the Lord, sorry, Ahab. And then Ahab goes back and totally just undermines that part, right? Like totally omits it. You know, I'm not going to give you my vineyard just because I'm selfish and I want to keep my vineyard. That's the voice that he puts in Naboth's mouth, right? which is not what came out. And so then interestingly, you have Naboth saying there's an authority higher than you, Ahab, that I'm going to submit to. And then you have the king going to his wife and then his wife is going to subvert or take Ahab's authority, even though technically in in the kingdom she's beneath him. Yeah, and so there's a lot going on here with with authority, mm-hmm. um, and Naboth is the only one who's acting righteously. So what does Jezebel do in verse seven? And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, "Do you now govern Israel?" Which I'm hearing a little condescending here. You know, do you now govern Israel? You know, what's wrong with you, little boy? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which, Mm. you know, it's like, I will give you this vineyard. Mm -hmm. Now here in that, as we're, as we're thinking about the fall, right? It's who's in charge? Who is in charge here? And so she says, I want you to get up and I want you to eat and I want you to make yourself happy is the idea. And then if you look in the Hebrew, it's I will give you this vineyard or garden. And then it's the fruit that God has sown. Naboth the Jezreelite, if you translate it into Hebrew, it is the fruit that God has sown. Wow. And so here you have Jezebel looking at her husband saying, take what you want. Don't you want to be happy here? I'm going to give this garden to you, the fruit that God has sown. Um, it, and, and defiance and rebellion, it's, it's like – Hmm, this this story sounds familiar. Yes, you know we see the we we see the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we're like, this is good. It's beautiful. I'm going to mm-hmm. eat this fruit. Yeah, yeah, it's going to make me happy. <laughs> so verse eight, here's her plan. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. Which get, correct me if I'm wrong. If you did that, if you wrote letters in the king's name and sealed them with the king's seal, wouldn't you be put to death? Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. And that's that's universal. That's all the ancient empires of the, of the forging the king's name or authority was death penalty. Right. All over the ancient world. Whether you were queen or not. Mm-hmm. It's like if you wrote in the name of the king and sealed it with his seal um, and the king didn't tell you to do that or mm-hmm. whatever, you were dead. And she had – one of the interesting things just as a side note, kind of nerdy archaeological thing that people can Google and it's kind of fun to look at. They have found – rings with both Jezebel and Ahab's seal. Um, the Jezebel one is really fascinating because um, it, it includes her name written on it with all sorts of actually Egyptian-looking figures um, where they pulled a lot of their imagery for the worship of Baal. It's really, really fascinating. Hmm. And so it says, she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Now, to proclaim a fast, um, if the leaders of a city were saying, we're calling a fast, why what, Why were they doing that? Almost all the time, if you had a leader proclaiming a fast, it's because it's an acknowledgement that there's some great sin. Okay. You know, you, you think of Jonah walking into Nineveh and saying, repent, for 40 days you'll be destroyed. What does the king do? He proclaims a fast. Um, the, the Persian and Babylonian leaders, when they were caught in sin, you know, they would proclaim a fast that went throughout the kingdom. I mean, you saw that again and again as a, we are in trouble, 
we need to repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness is the, kind of the idea. Okay. So it's, it's, we've done something wrong and God is angry. Or an army is coming. That's the other one that you okay. see a lot. We are in desperate danger. We're about to be defeated. Let's proclaim a fast. So the deception here is she's telling the leaders of the city, create an emergency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, not that, not that we don't have, our present-day world, people don't do that at all, Sam, do they? They never manufacture an emergency. To be, no, it feels like that's all they do. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so she, she says, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And I just wanted to point out, too, that thing of setting Naboth at the head of the people, um, that's not – people. You know, some people are like, well, why are they doing that? I think that that's telling us that Naboth – had an honored position mm-hmm. in the town because if they they weren't just going to bring some guy in and put him at the head of the people they see you know put Naboth essentially at the head of the people because he could right he could rightly sit there mm-hmm. so i think that's telling us something about the status and the standing of Naboth this was a guy that was known as a righteous man in town like he's a, mm-hmm. he's an important guy uh he owned a he owned a vineyard next to the palace that was prime land mm-hmm. yeah and then verse 10, it says, and set two worthless men opposite him. I, the King James says, scoundrels. I miss the word scoundrel. <laughs> I like we need, scoundrels. We need scoundrels. And set two scoundrels opposite him. Makes me think him. of the movie with Michael Caine and uh, – oh, come on. What's his name? Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, uh, I don't know. I the don't. comedian, famous, Saturday Night Live, white hair. Oh, Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Good Steve grief. Martin. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> I'm surprised I got Michael Caine and not Steve Martin. Yeah, I, I you know, is that, okay. dirty rotten scoundrels. That yes. could be here. That's probably what that, that that's a better translation. So, yeah, and uh, so I, and I actually think that uh, it's actually I said the King James version. It's actually the New King James version that uses the word scoundrels. In the King James version, it refers to them. It calls them sons of Belial, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Uh, but, Which just means worthless. But the New King James was the scoundrels. That's I knew I'd that I knew I had read the word scoundrels, and as I was reading this, and I'm like, I just like that word because it describes them. Good for nothing. Good for nothing. Idea. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, "You have cursed God and the king." Then take him out and stone him to death. Now, okay, we now we're Americans, 21st century Americans. We're like, hey, you know. <laughs> Big deal. I was in Publix and I heard people cursing God and the president and the Pope and everybody else. So, but that was a bigger deal back then, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if somebody was known to have cursed God and the king, that was like basically pronouncing their own death sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, according to the law, that would be a death sentence. Now, the irony is you have Jezebel and Ahab who have absolutely been cursing God and killing his prophets for years prior yeah. to this moment, who now all of a sudden are proclaiming a fast and who believe that it's, you know what, we should follow the law of God. And so they manufacture, they use the law for their own ends. Um, and But yeah, this would have been a, a bad deal for, for Naboth. I think that's interesting too that what you pointed out there, using the law for their own ends, because she really was trying to wrap this all up in this veneer of mm-hmm. religious – sensibility like this we're doing this because we because we fear god this is the kind of thing we do for god um, that never happens yeah <laughs> that never happens either you know it's like because there's folks you have a question about how contemporary the old testament is i could be right this could be reading you about washington <laughs> dc right now 
It's like, you know, a, a manufactured emergency, um, you know, getting under the umbrella of my religion compels me to do this. I'm like, mm-hmm. no. Except now it would be like woke orthodoxy. Now we would want to stone people for that. The, yeah. the Bible's pretty much out the window, yeah. but we still have things that are unforgivable. So th- in this case, um, the elders of the city, it says verse 11, and the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. I had two thoughts about this when I was when I was breaking down the passage. The first was that it was maybe they were really afraid of Jezebel. Maybe they were like, you can't say no to Jezebel. Okay? And and or they saw it come in the name of the king and they went, this has Jezebel written all over it. <laughs> it's like they yeah, it came from Ahab, but you know this is a Jezebel thing. It's just too ruthless to have come from Ahab who's probably pouting in his room somewhere. So if we don't do this, we're gonna have Jezebel after us and nobody survives having Jezebel after them. And I was kind of giving them some slack, okay? Except then I thought, you know, they didn't even try to warn him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it, if it's, if, if it was me, if I got the order from Jezebel and I thought, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get Naboth killed over this, but neither can I disobey Jezebel. I think that what I would have done is proclaimed the fast and announced that Naboth was going to be there. And then I would have taken Naboth aside and said, listen, I think it's a good time for you to emigrate <laughs> to Egypt. <laughs> don't even yeah. look back. Don't think about your vineyard. If you value your life and the life of your family, take them and get out of town now. And then I go back to Je- to to uh, Jezebel and I say, I don't know. Naboth left, but this land is now available and hope that that's enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been I'm just saying if at least then I would have said, well, you had enough courage to try to spare this guy's life. But instead, I think this is like just extreme cowardice on their yeah. part. And I also think had that even happened, Naboth is such a principled man. I think when he says no to Ahab, he knows what's at stake and he's willing to lay his life down for the sake of the promise, okay, uh, the land that had been given to him. And so I think even had he been warned, he'd say, no, I'm staying. He might not have walked into the trap yeah. <laughs> you know, the same way. But it's mind-boggling that the king – the queen, and every single one of these elders, there's not one dissenting voice. There's not one who warns them, like you said. They just all go right along with it and are part of this evil. It's 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 crazy. It's wild. It, it and is. And you can imagine, like, Elijah, when he is despairing at how wicked this kingdom had come, it's not just Ahab and Jezebel. It's elders and leaders that fold right in with no problem, it seems like. Just nobody stands up to the evil avalanche that's going on in Israel. Yeah. Um, and you get a sense, man, this would not have been a good place to live, a good time to live. I mean, just evil, corruption everywhere. And it's, you know, like you said, this this could be written today, it feels like sometimes. It does feel that way, you know. What happens next is that the two worthless men do their job. It says, verse 13, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And I I Mm -hmm. want to stop here for a second and say, even worse, 
in Second Kings, I think it's chapter nine, verse six, it comes out that not only, and I hope that's the reference. I didn't look it up. I, I looked it up for study notes, but I haven't looked it up to verify. Second Kings nine twenty six. Twenty six. Okay, I knew there was a nine and a six. Second Kings nine twenty six. <laughs> we're told that it was not just Naboth that died, but they also killed Naboth's children, which they would have done right to prevent. Because otherwise, if Naboth died, then the vineyard would have just gone to his children. That's right. The the firstborn son would have received it. So this was a situation where they exterminated Naboth and his – at least his sons. If he had daughters, mm-hmm. that they probably let them live and they I'm sure they let his wife live because um, it was only the male you know, heirs that would inherit the property. So this crime is even bigger than that. It's like mm-hmm. we killed Naboth and we killed his sons also. It's just utterly ruthless. But then – then you hear this story, right? And and immediately we're like, oh, this makes me angry. You know how wicked they are. But you you go through the details of the story, you know, and and you start imagining, you know, that they're surrounding, they're going out and finding worthless men to testify against him, and even the charges that are brought against him that he's committed blasphemy and he's cursing the governing authorities. Those are the same charges that are going to be leveled against Christ. And hmm. what do they do with him? They they beat him. They oppose him. They they take him outside of the city of Jerusalem and they execute him. And so in some sense, like when we get angry at this story, there's a couple of things that this chapter is doing, I think. That's my opinion. You know, when, when we see that this whole chapter is set up as kind of a retelling almost of the garden narrative of the fall – well, guess guess who we are in that story? <laughs> you know, we're we inherited our nature from Adam and Eve, which is Ahab and Jezebel, essentially. You know, it's it's that same sin, selfish nature, and so we're invited to recognize. Oh my gosh, like my nature is those wicked behaviors. But then beyond that, you know, when when it invites us to see that this is you know the same kind of evil that happened to Christ, the righteous man who is holding on to the covenant and the promise and charges are brought against him even though he's righteous and he's taken outside and he's stoned or he's crucified, put to death. You know, well, who is it that crucified him? Well, technically, yeah, it's the Romans. But why is he on the cross? Because of my wickedness. Mm. Um, and so all throughout this story, there's these gut check moments where we have to stop and go, yeah, I despise Ahab and Jezebel, but I – and part of their story, their nature, you know, mm. that I'm being called away from. It's mm. It does give a gut check. And then it says that after they sent to Jezebel, saying Naboth has been stoned, he's dead. As Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab felt all better. Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. I'm sure that at that point, uh, you know, Pastor Tom, when he was preaching out at this Sunday, had, being humorous, of course, but was referring to the fact that Ahab had had the landscape architect come in already, and he had all the drawings and the <laughs> the plots of where all the different plants were going to go and how it was going to be this lovely garden for him to go out and relax in and that sort of thing. Um you know, I'm going to suggest that that might actually been, you know, Ahab clearly had plans for this and he was really happy to go down and start, mm-hmm. you know, pacing out and walking around his new 
plot of land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it never never talks about oh Ahab mourned because he wasn't aware of this plot. Like he is, he's every bit as guilty as Jezebel, even more so. Yeah, um, because he's he's allowing her and and his cowardice. He's allowing her to do the hard stuff that is in his heart. Yeah. It's it's very clear that he's delighted yeah. that. He's out of the way and he can take this vineyard. It's gross. I see him again as like a five-year-old. I see him getting up out of his mm-hmm. bed and clapping his hands and like, oh, good. And he's off to play with his new toy without mm-hmm. even asking, oh, what happened to Naboth? You know, or that kind of, you know, it's like, eh, it's just, it's pretty bad. In this story, you know, Jesus, when you get to the New Testament, he tells lots of parables. It's one of Jesus's favorite ways to teach and he said he'll tell these, you know, stories where that you're supposed to relate to. But one of the themes that he talks about a lot in his parable is vineyards. And there's this really, really pointed moment in Matthew 21. And Matthew 21 is most noted for this is his triumphal entry, right? Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's coming into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. Um, everybody's cheering him and it drives all the people of authority nuts and he's they're they're angry that he's coming into town and that people are going after him. And so in this context, you know, so right as, as soon as all this is going on, he's telling he tells the parable of the tenants which is in Matthew 21 starting at verse 33. And listen listen to what he says. He says there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard which literally like he sows this is Jezreel, which is in Hebrew, but this is Greek anyway. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and then he went to another country. And when the season – so in other words, this is the, – the master of the house is the Lord, if you didn't pick up on that in the parable. Right. But the Lord has made this vineyard. The Lord – this is his vineyard. And it says when the season for fruit drew near, which in Hebrew, if you were going back, would be – Naboth, right? The fruit drew near. He sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit, and his tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, like, hey, I want my vineyard. I want to check in on my vineyard. I want the fruit of my vineyard. And they did the same to them. And finally, the master of this vineyard, the owner of the vineyard, sends his own son to them saying, oh, surely they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Hear that? His inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, sound familiar? And killed him. When therefore the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And I've got to think, you know, Jesus, being the Lord, who was God on the throne in the days of Ahab, is is thinking about this story mm. where these these mm. wicked people I mean what does it say this is not your home this land belongs to me you're merely sojourners you're merely tenants here and what do they do they they try to snatch and take possession of the lord's vineyard that he had sown and what do they do they they kill naboth they take possession of it and that that word naboth also comes from a word that is hinting toward prophet the word hebrew in hebrew the word prophet is navi which is the beginning of naboth but it's like they're killing the prophets everybody who goes to them they kill and mm-hmm. god says surely they'll respect my son right and they kill him too and so the lord in this parable is throwing down on all the religious leaders in a sense you're ahab you're jezebel you're these wicked elders 
that will do anything, all kinds of wickedness, to mm-hmm. snatch what is mine away from me and to withhold what you owe me. Um, and I thought that's just such it echoes so much of this story coming out of the mouth of Jesus um, that really everything we have is his vineyard. <laughs> this is all his. And we owe him the fruit of the vineyard. And, you know, the religious leaders back in the day killed all of his servants, the prophets, and even killed his son. And that is the reflection Hmm. of what humanity has done to the master of the vineyard. That's really good. Yeah. I think that's a good good take on that. Yeah. yeah. That that line, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. Yep. You know, what does Naboth say? I can't sell it to you. Right. This this is the inheritance of my father's. Like I all the language in this parable is hearkening back yeah. at this story. That's good. And it's inviting us to recognize that those who stood against Christ or Ahab and Jezebel and those yeah. wicked elders. Yeah. And we play some role in that somehow. So let's see what happens next to our friend Ahab. <clears throat> Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord comes to came to the gunslinger, Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, when I read that, I thought, oh, good. You know, it's like when you get to that point, <laughs> this point in the story, you're like, Elijah. Bring Elijah back in because Elijah's a guy that knows how to call down fire. I want call. I want Elijah to walk up and call down fire. You know, it takes him on a walk to the Keyshawn River. Eh, come on over here. Yeah, exactly. You know, get, you, just, you just no any place is fine. Just stand anywhere along the river. It's just we'd like to have you near the water because it's easier to clean up afterwards. Clean up from what? <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. You know, it's like <clears throat> I'll tell you. Hey, hey, this is one of those points that if this was and, – and, and let me tell you, this this is like every Chuck Norris movie I ever watched. I was a huge Chuck Norris fan, watched all of his movies because I like that kind of – and they're all based on like the spaghetti western sort of uh, style of movie where basically the hero stays kind of aloof or apart from the story until until all the bad things are done and then somebody comes to the hero and his, and then he comes in and sets everything right. And th- mm-hmm. I'm like, OK, this is like – the bad guys have have risen to the top. They've taken control. They've killed the good guys or the innocent guy in in Naboth, and and they've taken possession of this. And and Chuck Norris just got word, <laughs> you know. And Chuck is going to come in, and these guys are going to pay. So that's what I'm expecting here. I'm expecting mm-hmm. Elijah the Tishbite to be Chuck Norris in this in this moment. Verse seventeen. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, "Arise." Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your own blood. Hmm. And, <laughs> verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, oh, my enemy? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <clears throat> and Elijah answers, he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Mm. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. Uh, color commentary, the King James Version, does use our phrase, everyone who pisseth against the wall. 
Uh, that <laughs> Meaning male. Meaning yeah. male, yes. <laughs> because apparently they couldn't be bothered to find an actual toilet back then either. <laughs> Verse 22, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. If you remember, Jeroboam was the guy who started all of this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Jeroboam is – king of the ten tribes of the north. Yeah. yeah, he's the guy that's held up as the prototype. He led Israel into sin. He's the first one that tried to – conflate mm-hmm. the worship of Yahweh and Baal in this. And and the difference between Jeroboam and Ahab is that Ahab's just pretty much thrown away the worship of Yahweh. It's like, mm-hmm. it's just Baal. Um, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of heaven shall eat. I, there's a bunch of things here, right? I mean, obviously having, you know, being eaten after you die isn't a good thing in that culture, right? Burial was a whole big deal, right? Not only is burial a big thing, but what this is communicating, like, If you remember, you know, when Jesus dies on the cross, there's a rush to get him properly buried before nightfall comes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. It was a sign of great disrespect if you let somebody's body rot. Um, And so when it says that the dogs come and lick up their blood or eat them or whatever, what it's saying is nobody cares enough for them. In other words, you're going to die and nobody's going to bury you properly because no one's going to even care about you. Like you have so done so much wickedness. You've done so much to harm people that when you die, the dogs are going to take care of you, not your loved ones. And the same will be true with Jezebel. And so it's – and anyone who dies in your line, the birds are going to eat or the dogs are going to take care of because no human beings are going to care to show you any respect after what – the way that you've lived and the way that you've harmed other people. And so it's it's a – Horrible. I mean, it's not just the idea of, of being eaten by a dog, but it's that there will be no person to step in to spare you from the dogs yeah. and the birds. And to the pet owners of America that are listening, um, these were not domesticated dogs. I mean, this was at a right. time when they the dogs basically were living like wild wild animals because they were basically mm-hmm. wild animals. Um, yeah. You know, think dingoes ate my baby or something. It's like it's a it's one of those <laughs> things where well, I mean they were they were they were not. If you got if you got you know jumped on by a pack of dogs, that was as bad as getting jumped on by some coyotes or something. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it was yeah. not it was not a good thing. So yeah, jackals in a sense. Yeah, and and so right here, you see this that it is played out. You know, to continue with that the garden line of thinking. You know, we're we're the, grabbing the fruit that the Lord has sown and all this stuff, and and the husband takes it from the wife and eats and wants to be happy and all that stuff that follows Genesis 3. Now you have the conclusion of Genesis 3, which is what? The Lord comes to Adam and Eve and pronounces to Adam, you know, from the dust you were taken to the dust you shall return. As a result of your sin, you are going to suffer death. And so now here comes the Lord at the end of this narrative, and it's the same. You're going to be – you're going to suffer death, and it's going to be this ignominious death where nobody's going to – respect you. Yeah. And so the the metaphor or the line of of the story follows Genesis 3 and wraps up right here. Yeah. 
And uh, to go with my Chuck Norris movie metaphor, this is basically Chuck has told them where he's going to kick them, and now he's getting ready to <laughs> actually kick them. And so at this point, you're thinking Ahab is going to get his. Verse 25, parenthetically, he says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So Ahab was like the worst of the worst. I was just going to say that line, you know, he sold himself. This is now it's, it's being repeated here. And I love that, that idea. It's, you know, Jesus picks up on that. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul and it lose his soul? And here you have Elijah who's coming to him and it's like, you sold yourself. What did you gain? What was worth your soul? What was worth the fact that nobody is going to revere you or respect you when you, when you're gone? Well, you got a vineyard. You got a little bit of wealth. You got a little bit of comfort here. And you sold yourself and you've lost the promise of God. You've lost the covenant of God. You've lost the respect of the people. I hope you're happy with the deal that you've made. And that idea of selling yourself also carries like connotations of prostitution. Like you've given yourself out, sold yourself and given yourself away for just the cheapest, Mm. pettiest forms of satisfaction when something so much greater was offered to you. Um, and yeah, Jesus uses that same kind of language. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen to Ahab. But then in verse 27, what it tells us is as when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. All right. I got to ask, Ahab has done nothing to this point that has shown us that he gave any regard to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. What is your take on this? Is this is this Ahab actually repenting? Is like Ahab did Ahab even believe in God? Why did he do this? So the word of the Lord in the next line in twenty eight and twenty nine says that Ahab has humbled himself before me. Right. And so there's two ways that you can think about this. One is that Ahab is looking and going, oh, my gosh, God, I'm sorry for the way that I wounded you. Um, Another way that you can look at it, and the word humbled before me is used interchangeably here. It could be God saying he has done the appropriate thing as a king in the sight of all others in front of me. In other words, like he has gone through the process of humbling himself before me. In other words, he's seeking to be a good king, showing the people that he cannot just defy me. And so he is publicly declaring that I hold more authority than him. He's tearing his clothes, putting sackcloth on, he's fasting, um, and he's going around in sadness. And so he's showing the people the correct response of a king, that he's under my authority. So whether or not it's authentic in the moment, it's certainly not uh, uh, coming to faith. We know that from the next chapter. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Where Ahab returns to form. Correct. But this, at least in the moment, he's publicly humbling himself. Yeah. Well, it does say, uh, verse 28, as you said, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, verse 29, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days 
but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. So mm-hmm. basically somebody came up to Chuck and said, no, you can't kick this guy right now. Um, yeah. I, I will tell you, I really didn't like the way this chapter ended. I wanted to see Ahab get his comeuppance. And I, I, I was filled with questions about this because like you, I guess, I, are you leaning toward the it was not a sincere thing? Yeah, it, it wasn't sincere. I, I don't think so. I think that Ahab was doing the ritual that he thought might get God to not do this to him. He was like, it was, it was self-preservation, basically. Mm-hmm. Certainly God could see his heart. Certainly God could see through this. And it, it just went against everything in me, Sam. I'm like, the Lord could see that Ahab was not sincere. And yet he mm-hmm. allowed this public display of humility to influence him, or at least he says that he allowed it to influence him. Um, I just really struggled with this ending. Did God not see it coming? Well, of course God saw it coming. Could God not see his heart? Of course God could see his heart. So assuming that the Lord sees everything and knows everything and everything else, why do you think that the Lord allowed this insincere display of fake penitence to divert the disaster off of Ahab. You know, we don't know. Um, but you can look in the life of Ahab and you see God's mercy to him time and time and time again. You do. The story he where you're like, gives him chance oh after chance to turn back. Yeah. You know, it's like God promised Elijah on Mount Sinai that he was going to bring judgment upon the wickedness of Israel. And when Ben-Hadad has this massive Syrian army at the gates and it's like, oh, here it comes, you know, he's going to to bring justice for all the wickedness of this king and, and the people, he favors them. He he stands up and gives the enemy into his hand. He And it's like you see, you know, God's mercy – Again and again and again and again, just pressing in. Um, and even though, you know, at this point, after after Naboth, when God has declared his judgment is going to fall, there's no taking that judgment back. He delays it, but he doesn't take the judgment back. That's true. Uh, Ahab That's true. is still going to die, and dogs are still going to lick lick him up. You know, and right. his kids are all of his line is going to end with his children. Like it, the line perishes. So none of God's justice is taken away, but there is time where he continues to show mercy. Um, and, you know, I think he does that with with a lot of people that you find in scriptures. And sometimes, um, you know, he does he shows that mercy for the sake of others. You know, it makes me wonder if, you know, had he allowed Ben-Hadad to just come in and totally sack Israel at this point, how many people who would be saved in the hundred years to come would otherwise have been lost? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so God has his reasons, and it might not have been purely for mercy to Ahab. It could have been tangential mercies to the people around Ahab. Yeah. You know. So we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. But, but we do know that God's heart in it is good. That's true. And and that's where I kind of had to wind up with my own personal study is to say that, all right, we know the Lord is good. We know that the Lord, you know, knows what he's doing. And and 
and of course, I we've already been looking ahead at the next chapter. Spoiler alert. Ahab gets yet one more chance. He gets yet one more warning from God. I mean, just like literally in the immediate moments before he goes off and does something stupid, Ahab has yet another opportunity from God to say, wow, what am I doing? Um, and, you know, God was showing his faithfulness and his kindness toward Ahab, who was the king of Israel, because Israel was his chosen people. And I think that for me, I kind of came away with this saying, you know, I like to look at Ahab's sin and say how egregious it is and how what a terrible guy Ahab was, as if somehow that makes me a better guy, as mm-hmm. if somehow by putting Ahab down for his entitlement, I'm a better guy. And, you know, you gave this illustration once, and I've, I've stolen it a few times since you gave it because I really like it. It's one where you said everybody wants to compare themselves on the scale of good to bad with, like, Stalin and Hitler on the one end and, mm-hmm. and then themselves spaced out. You know, I, look, I'm no way – I'm not all the way to the good side, but I'm certainly nowhere near somebody like an Adolf Hitler who killed 6 million Jews or Joseph Stalin who killed 10 million Russians. I'm just, you know, I'm not like those guys, right? Because we all see ourselves that way. And you said it's you've got the wrong scale. At the other end of the scale is God, which means that all of us, no matter how good we think we are, are all collapsed down into the same tiny little black dot <laughs> on yeah, the bad end of the scale. That, that line is infinite. Yep. Yeah. And and so you're not just standing next to a to Adolf Hitler. You're like laying on top of Adolf Hitler. You're like right there <laughs> with him. You know, I'm as repugnant a person on the scale of sin as someone like that, which when you say it, you're like, of course you're not, Mark. And I'm like, no, of course I am. If you're going to look at this mm-hmm. theologically, if you're going to look at this from the standpoint of God's holiness, I'm no better than Ahab. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 pretty wild. And, you know, what it reveals in us and this is this is something that's kind of a gut check when I think about it is when I look at Ahab, if I'm standing right next to him and I think, who deserves God's mercy? Now, I know the question's an oxymoron, but right. who deserves God's mercy? Who deserves God's favor? I want to say, well, of course I do. Right. You know, look at him. Look at him. Right. And so in that, it reveals that when I think of my salvation, when I think of my relationship to the Lord, I'm still basing it on what I contribute. Mm-hmm. Right? I deserve it more than him. Yep. When the gospel comes in to me and tells me, the only thing you deserve, Sam, is to go to hell. You have warred against God. You are selfish to your core. Everything, even even the good things you do, you think, "Oh, did anyone notice? Did anyone notice?" You know, like you're you're rotten. I mean, and yet I love you so much that I'll redeem you, and I'll put my spirit in you, and I'll show you, I'll pull out design from you by the power of the spirit to be you know, to show the fruit of the spirit. Things like love, joy, and peace, and patience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, but but when I stand next to an Ahab and I say I deserve it more than him, it reveals that I still, in my gut, believe I can earn God's favor. Mm-hmm. And the gospel comes and says no one can. Yeah. Ahab couldn't. Mother Teresa can't. No one can. You all fall short. It is all by Christ coming to you and clothing you 
with his righteousness. That is the only thing that makes you worthy to stand before God. Your righteousness, as Isaiah says, is like filthy rags in his sight. Do not go to the Lord thinking, I deserve him. You don't. But he loves you so much that he would give his own son to make you worthy of him. Yeah. That's the gospel. Yeah. And so when we read these stories and we go, oh, stupid Ahab, you know, what a – and I do it. Like <laughs> it's almost impossible not to. But you can't think I deserve it more than him. You can't. Because that would make you entitled and that would make mm-hmm. you the same as Ahab. That's right. <laughs> That's good, yeah. We're guilty of his same sin. When we stand next to him and go, Lord, I'm better than that guy. I deserve your mercy more than that guy. Am I not committing the same sin that Ahab commits? Absolutely, I am. In the end, it's about the fact that that I shouldn't – it's like I shouldn't be upset that Ahab got shown mercy by God. I should walk away from this in amazement that God shows mercy to anyone, even me. And, you know, you think of what, what Naboth suffered because the same, the same condemnation that God pours down on Ahab that you're going to be cut off and your sons, there will be no more of your line – that's what Naboth suffered, right? You right, have you right. know Naboth and his sons are wiped out. His line ends with him, just like Ahab's will. One one you know a fairly righteous man seeking after the Lord, the other one wicked. But they both suffer the same fate. And you know this is where when you think of Christ stepping into this world, when you get to the book of Isaiah, one of the things that it says, and it's Isaiah fifty three, it just absolutely describing Jesus in this unbelievable prophetic way, 700 plus years before Jesus is born, it says, by oppression and judgment, he, Jesus, was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In other words, Jesus never took a wife. He never got to have kids. He never entered into that experience. Like he was robbed of that blessing Mm -hmm. like they were. And I love this. And And verse 10, when it goes on, we were just talking about this with somebody recently, I forget, but it says, you know, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him, he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for our guilt, and then it says this, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And it says, and this is one of my favorite lines that I've just recently started noticing in Isaiah 53 and get this. So as he's being crushed on the cross – Right after it's talking about all the offspring that Christ shall see, even though he had no offspring on earth, he has offspring. If you're listening to my voice and you call him your Lord and Savior, you are his offspring. And it says, out of the anguish of his soul, imagine him on the cross and all of his suffering, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Mm. In other words, in this life, he was robbed of all of those blessings, all of those wonderful things, the same ones that Naboth was robbed from. But in giving his life, he's redeemed all of us. And now for eternity, we will be considered his offspring. Now there's hope beyond the grave. And even in the anguish of his soul on the cross, when he looks beyond what the cross is going to purchase and accomplish, when he sees us redeemed and glorified with him forever – He shall see and be satisfied when he looks at what he's purchasing. You, if you're hearing my voice, he's purchased you and he's satisfied with that deal. Mm. 
He took the cross as payment to purchase you, and he's satisfied. Hmm. That's just such a mind-blowing thing. Yeah. Um, and we're his offspring. He's, he's overcome what Naboth could not. Yeah. And he's purchased Naboth for himself. Well, that's a good word, and we'll let that stand as our last word on this uh, on this subject for this week. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that uh, this has been a profitable meditation for you. Um, we're glad that you're along for the ride as we go through these. If there's things that we talk about that uh, prompt questions in you or there's uh, something you'd like to share, a thought you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. Um, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com, uh, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us, of course, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Community Church smartphone app, which is available at an app store near you. We'll be back next week, uh, Sam and I, with First Kings chapter 22 and the end of Ahab. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.